Welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where we read about Kate's childhood so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm not Renata. And for this episode, we read a selection of Babysitter's Club books by Anne M. Martin. Joining us to discuss the world's most capable 13-year-olds is Jennifer, grad student, comic book editor, and Marianne slash Mallory hybrid. Hi, Jen. So you may have noticed back there that uh, Renata's not here. As we discussed a little bit at the end of our last episode, Renata's off in a sadness cave uh, for the summer. She was supposed to go hiking. Her hiking companion canceled on her. So she just retreated Wolverine style into the woods. <laughs> uh, we might check in with her a little bit later. But until then, our editor Becca is here to cover Renata's little sojourn into the woods. Uh, starting with this episode where we're talking about the Babysitter's Club. Right. I'm super qualified to talk about books. I read them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so I figure we'll start off by talking a little bit about what the Babysitter's Club books were to girls growing up in the 90s and kind of how much of a, a touchstone they were for basically everyone I knew. Why don't we start with you, Jennifer? Sure. So I picked up my first Babysitter's Club book when I was halfway through first grade. Um, I'd always been a, a pretty strong reader. And at that point, I couldn't even read cursive. And so the diary entries Man. from Babysitter's, <laughs> my mom had to read them to me. And then she would make fun of Claudia's spelling and I would yell at her. <laughs> uh, so I, I started very early and I decided I had to read them chronologically um, because I was apparently a comic book reader in training, even though I didn't <laughs> read any comics until uh, college. And I remember waiting forever for my hold on Maid Marianne to come in and I wouldn't read any other books <laughs> until it did. So I was, I was a weird neurotic kid, uh, but I really loved the Babysitter's Club because I'd always loved realistic fiction and because it was about a group of girls who, when I was six, seemed like they were so uh, adult and sophisticated right? at 13. Sophisticated being a word that comes up every <laughs> two <the> seconds <laughs> in these books, usually to describe Stacey, although Claudia definitely <laughs> Claudia did say definitely one used it in this one. She was like, me and Stacey are the so sophisticated <laughs> ones. I was like, yeah. you're 13 year old brats. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, from, from about um, kid, uh, first grade through my eighth grade year, when the Babysitter's Club main series ended, I read every single one. Uh, and I also read all of the super specials and the weird extra books like the portrait collection. I had two board games. I mean, this was, this was a humongous franchise. I realized that, that the books started coming out in 1986, which was the year I was born, but they, they continued and they came out like clockwork every month and libraries were stocking them. And there was briefly a, a TV show and there was a movie. And I went to college with the girl who played Jesse in the movie and she never wanted to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> were you so disappointed? <laughs> I was a little disappointed. I, I really was. Um, so basically the babysitter's club was huge. Uh, the California diaries were particularly important to me, uh, which I'll probably get into later. And I just liked that it was an ensemble of girls because there was one for everyone to relate to. That's why I you know, was introduced as a Marianne slash Mallory hybrid because those were the ones I identified with most. And growing up in that era, you had you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the, the Ghostbusters, which I was super into, but there were no girls. Or at best, there would be one girl 
So all of the guys would get personalities and the girl's personality would be girl. And having an ensemble of young women was really, really important for me at the time. It's interesting. That's something that I know that I've talked to, uh, talked about with friend of the show, Naomi before, and probably a couple other people, given the types of conversations I have with people that I feel very lucky. And I wonder how much of an impact things like the Babysitter's Club had on me as a child, because I was really into the Babysitter's Club. I was really into Sailor Moon. There were a bunch of franchises that were mostly female based that I was very interested in growing up. There weren't a ton of them, but somehow I just managed to stumble upon a lot of them. And I did, you know, I was really into X-Men. I was really into Star Wars, you know, other things as well. But I feel like having those as kind of a basis has maybe made me, I don't know, a little bit more aware of when there's not a lot of female representation, or at least it did as a kid. But I, I read these two as a kid. I'm not exactly sure when I started reading them, but it had to have been first or second grade, probably second grade, because I was a late bloomer and didn't actually start to read until first grade. My I'm the oldest, and my mother, it didn't really occur to her that she should teach me to read at home. She always assumed that that was what school was for. <laughs> so I went into first grade, like, not being able to read very many words at all. And then once it clicked in my head... I basically have had my nose in a book ever since. So probably second grade. I know by third grade, when I met one of my elementary school friends, I was already obsessed because we would play Babysitter's Club all the time. I read a lot of them. I had the two board games. My favorite books were the mysteries, both the mystery books that were in the regular series, and then when they did the spin-off series of mysteries, like, mm. I fucking love that shit. Like, give me a bunch of 13-year-old girls and their babysitting charges in a haunted house, and... This doesn't at all sound like what <laughs> you like. It's not shocking. This is a revelation. Unsurprisingly, probably the Babysitter Club book that I remember the best to this day is Mystery Number 10, Christie and the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> Becca's kind of looking at me. No, I, I, I don't know the details of it. I'm like, okay, that sounds like that could be any Babysitter's Club mystery to me. <laughs> you know, I took the, the video cassettes with the TV show out of the library. I won't sing the theme song, mostly because I can't sing. And I, as a kid, so interestingly enough, as a kid, I really badly wanted to be Christy, but I felt like I didn't have the personality for it because I was very anxious as a kid. I still am. I just manage it better. And I was very shy. Then, like, once I got a little bit older, I was like, oh, like, I'm definitely more of like a Mallory or a Marianne. And anyone who's met me now knows that life has come full circle and I'm definitely a Christy now. Like, <laughs> end of story, lesbian and all. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and what about you, Becca? I also think started reading them probably in the second grade. I got when they they probably still do, but they would sell like the sets of four. Yeah, which yeah. inexplicably, like it just seems so strange to me now. But I got a set of four probably for Christmas or something, and I think it was like there was they were in the twenties, and one of them was Mallory in the Trouble with Twins. I remember that one distinctly. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, so here's a series of book I can start getting out of the library every single weekend when we go and read a handful of them. And I didn't read them as deeply as I think you guys did. I read like the su I read some of the mysteries. I, re I definitely read the super mysteries and the super specials just because I liked that they were bigger. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, good, there's more pages. Christy's Great Idea was the first book I ever read in my life in one day. 
It's probably still one of only five, because I'm the <laughs> slowest reader on the face of the planet, but I was so proud of that accomplishment. But then also, I was reading literally through a school day, so I don't know what I was doing in school that day. <laughs> but I know I didn't read any of the spinoffs. I didn't read The Little Sister. I didn't care for the California Diaries. I never read those, because Dawn was my least favorite character. Yeah, I don't know. All my friends read them, but then I had, like, two friends, so that's not a wide. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, we had the board games. I played Babysitter's Club with my friends, and they also had Babysitter's Club Barbies. Did I mean, they? They, weren't, they weren't Barbie-branded Barbies, well, but... And I had a couple of those. They had bigger dolls, too, because I had Jesse and Mallory, and they were, they were, like, the height of American Girls dolls, but not as wide. They were, yeah, like, I, really, like, small heads. Yeah, I, rem- I do vaguely remember that. And I did, I read, so I, um, Scholastic Book Fair used to, and I'm sure they still do, used to do the subscription boxes where, like, for five bucks a month you got the latest book in a series and, like, a whole bunch of add-ons and stuff. And I think I did that for Babysitter's Club. I definitely did it for the Little Sister books, even though I was way too old for them by that point. But it was kind of one of those things where I was like, well, I've read all the other things, Mm -hmm. and I need to read more in this universe, so... You know, it was before I knew what fan fiction was, so this was, I was grasping at, at straws. I was, I was, you know, going for scraps here. The mysteries in The Little Sisters are the only ones I never finished. I read everything else in the series, but I was never a mystery person. And I think I managed to skip over, it sounds like all of us managed to skip over The Little Sisters entirely since we started reading the regular BSC books so early. But Karen was sort of a delightful character and I almost wish that I had gone back and read more of those. See, I wanted to murder Karen in every BSC book, so I was like, no way I'm reading those books. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> wanted to murder her too, but I did read all like 102 of them or well, whatever. Well, that sounds like you. <laughs> I mean, she's awful, but at the same time, I feel like little kids who are like Karen needed those books. I was I was not. I, You know, she's Christy in training. She's not uh, Marianne. But... Yeah, it was definitely, definitely a phenomenon. I think most people who listen to this podcast for the most part are around our age, so I'm sure there's a lot of you nodding along right now. But for any of you youngins on the internet, like, it was, it was everywhere for a while. It it feels like, it's funny, because they did start coming out in 86, but I feel like they really reached that height with, like, the movie and the board games and the dolls and everything, right when we were, like, right in the sweet spot for it. Yep, absolutely. I'm, I'm interested in why it took them so long to peak like that, because that was when the mystery started. That was when they started adding, like, more additional series. But let's, uh, let's, uh, dive into a little bit here. We read three books for this podcast. We read one from the actual Babysitter's Club collection, which was, uh, Keep Out Claudia, which is the babysitters dealing with racism. A uh, very special babysitter's club. <laughs> aren't they all? <laughs> not really some of them are just like kids and you're like yeah expected <laughs> uh we read uh, i can't remember now what was the super special called the we read the super special number four babysitter's island adventure is that what they called it yeah where yes. they get stranded on the island and we read um ducky number three, three which was number 15 the last of the california diaries So let's start with the Babysitter's Club. As I alluded to in Keep Out Claudia, uh, the general premise of this book is that 
a new family comes to town, they call the Babysitter's Club, Marianne sits for them and everything is fine. Claudia's the next babysitter who has to go sit for them and the kids treat her really badly and the mom treats her really badly and she thinks it's because she's dressed so wacky until Jessie goes to sit for them next and they literally shut the door in her face. And after some soul searching, white bread Christy realizes that maybe the Lowells are racist. Um, <laughs> this is all set on the backdrop of the neighborhood kids forming a band together. Ironically called all the children because they're children from all over the world. And by all over the world, they mean all the white countries and one black kid and two Asian kids. That covers it. What, what do you mean? And they perform all of the songs from Fiddler on the Roof. Yes. Uh, I like that that was a choice. Like, it seemed like that was a push of, like, what can we play? What can we change to that is then going to be, like, narratively offensive to the lols? And, like, that was the most cultural <laughs> they could get. They're like, well, they're Russian and they're Jewish. <laughs> uh, the babysitters eventually figure out and accept that Mrs. Lowell is racist and they call her on her racistness. Do they? Sort of. They, they kind of subtly call they her They play like it. a weird racist chicken with her. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she's like, I need a sitter. And they're like, oh, well, all of us are busy. What if, Lo is it Logan? Well, they start, she specifically says. Oh, oh, I only I, want. Can I have that blonde hair, blue eyed babysitter I've heard so much about? <laughs> <laughs> they then are like, oh, like the only babysitter available is Logan, who's a boy. A boy who babysits. <laughs> She's like, oh, and they're like, or like he just turns out to be like, things. oh, or I could do it. You know, if I don't have to sit for my Vietnamese, my Vietnamese adopted <laughs> sister. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> and then I feel like there's like one more, and then she was just like, never mind. And I was like, what just happened? You solved no problems. <laughs> And I, I almost feel like that was supposed to be, because then at the end we get the kids, they have the big band thing, the mother pulls them out of the band when she finds out they're doing Fiddler on the Roof, and they, like, come to watch the performance wistfully, as Claudia says, <laughs> and they're like, it's so sad that those kids, you know, can't play with other the rest of the kids because of their mother's racism, and then someone's like, well, maybe once they're older, they'll be able to think for themselves and realize that racism is bad. Or they, they actually, they only say the word racist once. Right. Then they right. switch to the word prejudice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because my favorite thing is even when Stacy drops reverse racism she doesn't say reverse racism she says reverse something or other and i was like if you're gonna play it play it and m martin or other writer no it is because the the ones that are ghostwriter are always like they thank the uh person who actually wrote it and so i think she actually wrote this one and the super special but not the ducky one gotcha and this book was so it's well-meaning and it tries but it tries really poorly and they're so cartoonishly racist that it almost not that there aren't people like this but it just seems to devalue what racism usually looks like most of the time right uh i feel like people who were as racist as this probably would have 
just gone with a super white person to begin with and not called a random number. Because these are kids who like only wanted to watch Leave It to Beaver on TV, which this is 1992. Uh, And then like... That was my favorite part. It's like everything about it felt like it was like, we just took a transplant from 1950s where everyone was racist and we moved it into the neighborhood. Like... She's wearing a pinafore. She's, <laughs> she's so offended by the idea of a boy babysitter, and you know that someone would have divorced parents or be Catholic. Like it wasn't even like felt what felt like a realistic portrayal of like how this would play out in any kind of real world scenario where these girls were babysitters. I think you're writing some pretty great fan fiction where a time <laughs> yes. portal opens up <laughs> and this family comes out of it. Maybe they're from Pleasantville. I feel like right? this that's might... yeah that's what it felt like <laughs> and the thing is like there's there's no sense of like how their racism is actually operating like it, it's they just seem to think that like Asians are funny looking but don't have any particular stereotypes or anything and like these these kids are I, I remember the bit where they're like, oh, she must be Catholic about uh, Mallory and the fact that her family has a bazillion children. I remember that part distinctly because I remember they asked Marianne uh, what her religion is and she says Presbyterian. And that's when I learned what a Presbyterian was because I was raised Catholic in a very Catholic town. And it, I think the whole book really highlights how white not just the kids are, but the babysitters, because even... Like, when they talk to Mallory, they're like, oh, they assumed your family is Catholic. Like, she can't actually be. Like, these are all just very, very white Protestant kids, except for Claudia and Jesse. And that makes for a really weird, uh, like, you're calling out this issue, but accidentally highlighting the issue that your books themselves have. Yeah, it felt almost like she was afraid to play up the stereotypes of, you know, the, the black stereotypes or the Asian stereotypes because she was maybe sort of self-aware that she was white. I don't know. Or maybe she just thought it would be too dicey for a kid's book in the early 90s. Because I remember, too, the, oh, she must be Catholic. And that, I think, is really the only actual stereotype, as opposed mm-hmm. to we don't like this type of person, that's alluded to directly. And that stuck with me, too, because I was raised Catholic and... I didn't understand what that meant at the time, and I had to ask my mother, and then we had to have an awkward conversation about it. <laughs> and I, I like, I, I can't help but wonder if she wasn't like, well, I don't want to say anything. Like, I don't want to say like, oh, like black people are poor and dirty or whatever. Right. You know, so I'll just like, I'll drop one stereotype, I'll allude to other ones, and I'll put one example in here, and it'll be Catholicism because like whatever white people. But it does, like, it does end up making it look like. They're totally equating, you know, all it's of It's all the same. You know, like, oh, you're divorced and that's the same as racism. Like... Or the part where Stacy's like, oh my god, she likes me because I'm blonde and blue-eyed. How should I feel about that? Yeah, I, like, <laughs> my life is so hard because I, I <laughs> have her like approval. Yeah. I was like, Stacy, calm down. Yeah, yeah. It's also, in case you didn't get this from us discussing it, Jesse sort of puts the pieces together subconsciously. It's sort of alluded to before Christy brings it up specifically. But Claudia has like no fucking clue that she's being prejudiced or racist against 
Yeah. She's like, it has to be my outfit. My outfit was just too wild. Like, there's no other reason anybody wouldn't like me or have any strong feelings against me in for no reason. Super white bread Connecticut town. You know, it, it's very hard to believe that Claudia has never once in her life experienced a microaggression or anyone making assumptions about her or anyone prejudiced against her because she's Japanese. Like, that, that, that it has to be Christy coming in and being like, oh my god, no, I solved the problem, I figured out what it was, it was racism. Jessie knew in her soul it was racism and cried about it to Mallory, but Christy was the one who gave it a name and, and really brought their attention to it, which is just, you know, problematic on a whole other level. It's, it's problematic on so many levels because Jesse's reactions are actually done pretty well. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that's handled well in this book. And she, she clearly knows what racism is like. They're not afraid to say that racism can lead to people getting murdered, uh, which I was surprised by and appreciated. But it, it winds up setting up this idea that at the same time that they're trying to say everything's racist, including racism against Russian heritage people, like, which is like, like Marianne's like, oh my God, I'm a little bit Russian in the past. Maybe they hate me too. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not a thing. So at the same time that they're sort of flattening all prejudices into one, they also seem to be creating a world where racism against black people is the only one that counts enough that someone would have experienced it before this moment. Yeah. And, and so like you, you have the worst of both worlds. You have this flattening of differences, but also not recognizing that Claudia almost certainly would have had experience with at least microaggressions in the past, if not much more than that. And, and like, there is a nice bit where she talks to her dad and he tells her about internment camps. So I was glad that this book addressed that at least but i don't know it was weird which is really interesting too now that you say that now that i said it too because now i'm thinking about it and like obviously one of the biggest asian stereotypes is you know oh like all asian kids are smart and claudia is not mm -hmm. and that was not i mean and it, I, there's there's a couple reasons why i think maybe that was not a stereotype that i was very familiar with as a kid one being that i went to a fairly diverse for a New Jersey school, um, at least when it came to, like, East Asian and Southeast Asian population. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one being that I fucking read all these books as a kid where, you know, the one Japanese girl is bad at school and good at art. Yeah. Interesting. No, that's... And, and I think it's valuable to, like, Claudia as a character is really, really important and valuable. It's just that when you start having, you know, addressing issues like this, all of a sudden... Yeah. And it also feels like the fact that she is constantly like it's it's it never seems to be like culturally. I don't know. Like, I want to know what Janine went through, basically. Yes. That would <laughs> like be because she she is like the very, very smart one. And I feel like she probably experienced a lot of shit as a result. And, you know, she's the older sister and that books aren't about her. But yeah. But so that that was that was that part of this book. You know, we're all real white. So if you have thoughts about this and you're not real white, we'd love to hear them. Feel free to tweet them at us at Worst Bestseller, because this is a pretty interesting conversation about a book that came out in 1992 that was sold for two bucks. <laughs> so the other, the other part of Babysitter's Club books is the sameness of them, which is something that we didn't really get into in the Animorphs 
conversation because the Animorphs weren't samey the way that these books are samey. So when we put together this kind of summer of nostalgia, uh, we were trying to, I kept calling them committee written books, and kind of lumping Babysitter's Club, Goosebumps, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, Boxcar Children, like all together under one umbrella. And that was, well, the um, Animorphs books were sort of committee written as well. Uh, there were a lot of ghostwriters in there. These, I think, were more so and were kind of more known for it, mm -hmm. I think, especially because there were so many factors that were basically the same in every book. Every chapter two of every Babysitter's Club book is exactly the same, where they go to a meeting and they go through who everyone is and what their job is, and that Stacy's a diabetic, but she's from New York, and she has a perm, and her parents are divorced, and she's very sophisticated, and Claudia's dumb at math and smart at art and has wild fashion and loves and junk food. All, like, every, like, everyone's got five points, and they tick them off. Like, whoever's narrating is like, let me tell you about my friends. <laughs> Say hello to my friends. Babysitter's Club. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you that's why it was so ridiculous that I, as a child, needed to read these in order. Because you don't. You don't yeah, I, at all. I was like, thinking about that earlier when you said that, because that's something I feel compelled to do now if ever I like go into anything that's a series. I have to start at the beginning, even though people are like, oh, the first like 50 of these suck. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta power through them. <laughs> Whereas I did not feel that compulsion with these as a child whatsoever. I just skipped around and picked up whatever was available and read it and was like, it's fine. Cause, oh, I think you mentioned in the Animorphs, I'm in the middle of editing the Animorphs podcast, so I've only heard half of it. But in the Animorphs podcast that everyone will have already listened to, <laughs> you're talking about how the Animorphs, like, was, you know, a serial and built on each one. Like, there was still an overarching, like, something changed in this book and it was still changed in the next book. Whereas these ones, like, they just hold at year 13 forever and sometimes this is going on and sometimes this isn't. Like, nothing really matters. I definitely saw something online where they talk, doesn't, like, Stacy start to date, like, Christy's older brother or something at one point? Yeah. And there's, like, someone was trying to track online. They were like, when they were and were not dating, and they're like, you cannot tell. In some books they are, in some books they aren't, and it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I think, I feel like the big things that change but don't change are Dawn living in Connecticut and living in California, which she goes back and forth a couple times, and then Stacy too, goes back and forth to New York a couple yeah. times. Well, Stacy, she also, like, randomly quits a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. sounds like Stacy. She's too cool <laughs> for them. She's very sophisticated. <laughs> And, like, but even those things, like, you know enough, like, you know, oh, Dawn's parents are divorced, and they always make sure to put that in, like, in chapter two, if it's a book where Dawn is living in California, it's like, Dawn used to be our alternate member, but she moved back to California to live with her father because she missed California too much. You know, it's still there. And it's not really, I think, until the later books, when Abby shows up, mm -hmm. that, like, actual changes start that kind of carry through. Which makes me think, th you know, hearing what you're saying about Stacy's dating history, if the books were necessarily written in order, or if it was like one of those, like, here's 15 plots, here's yeah, exactly. 15 assignments, whoever exactly. gets them in first is getting them published there we first. Go. I, think, I think that's the truth, because I read like a recent interview with Anna Martin where she was saying, you know, obviously there are ghostwriters, but I was still usually working on one book per month, it just wasn't sequential. So I think that proves that like, 
these things were being written at all different times. And then as long as something was in to come out on that monthly publishing schedule, uh, which is remarkable to me, by the way, because getting a comic book out every month is difficult <laughs> enough, and that's 22 pages. <laughs> yeah, so that's anybody have anything else to say about specifically the Babysitter's Club? Or shall we move on to the super specials? Christy does not know how to run a business. <laughs> She has great ideas. I couldn't but like read. I was like, first of all, you all meet three times a week. That's so much. So much for your extracurriculars. You're not getting into college because all you do is babysit. Whatever. Fine. Okay. They meet 530 to 6 three times a week. But all these parents, aren't they working in Stanford? How far away is Stanford? you got to commute from a big city. That takes a long time. You're not going to be ready to call and ask for a babysitter at 530. You're still in the car honking the horn at traffic. This is ridiculous, Christy. And it's 1992, so you don't have a cell phone. Right, exactly. No one has cell phones someone might have a car phone maybe <laughs> some of the rich people who live in watson's neighborhood <laughs> they're all rich though let's be real like they're, they're all the descriptions of the town yeah. they're all yeah. rich like that was my strongest feeling when they were talking about the band rehearsals the band starts like they have an idea just like oh we'll have a band one of the kids says it when it's just Claudia babysitting was it, the Radowskis, I yeah. think. And then a next babysitting meeting, she's me- babysitting the Newtons, and she was talking to them about the band, and then all the other babysitters who are also babysitting at the same time, where are all these parents all the time? <laughs> all of them were babysitting, but they all babysit like two to four, so I guess they all get home from work at like 3.30, whatever. whatever. But they she's just like everyone. Party. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I got the impression it was a lot of stay-at-home moms who just needed a damn break. I guess, yeah. That's what, that's what, but that's what I mean. Like, they're all rich. And they invite everyone over to the Newton's house. They're like, well, I'll just bring the kids I'm babysitting over. And then suddenly there's 20 people at this house. And I was like, as a parent, I'd be like, why did you just invite 20 people to my house? That's 20 little grubby hands going through my bathroom. And I got to get probably my maid to clean it. <laughs> their, their relationships with their charges were always super weird in that way but the richness when i realized that anna martin grew up in princeton and that this is basically just princeton transplanted to connecticut all of a sudden everything made a lot of sense (laughs) because i i went to princeton for college and everyone in that town is super rich and snotty and then there are like the really really rich ones so that makes the other ones feel as if they're middle class but they are not yeah exactly whenever they were like Chrissy's stepdad has a mansion. He's rich. He's I'm like, you're all pretty rich, okay? None of you are a lower class. There isn't a low class neighborhood in this town, it sounds like. You can afford to live in a white bread Connecticut suburb with safe enough streets that you can have 13-year-olds babysit your kids and wander around the neighborhood and go to other people's houses without worrying about it. You right. have money. Yeah. <laughs> So those are my strong feelings about the babysitters club in general. Let's move on to the super special. Yes. Speaking of being rich, <laughs> <laughs> let's learn sailing. <laughs> so this is the one where they get stranded on the island for two, three days. And they get stranded on the island because Claudia and Dawn are taking sailing lessons. And But I mean, at the community center. It wasn't like private... No, not like Mallory's family who has exactly. the right boat that they go Mallory, out. Mallory, who has, like, two boats, because they, like, divvied yeah. up at one point. How many, I mean, I got, they got a lot of kids to carry around. They need two boats, but damn. Mallory is supposed to be the poor family, too. Right? So, <laughs> so this is 
is what I'm saying. It's like, no offense to the town we live in currently, but it is like the town we live in currently, yes. where they're like, oh, but the rich people. I'm like, no, you're the rich people. I grew up in a poor community. Thank you. Goodbye. The Pikes are the poor family. They can only afford two boats. <laughs> so they decide to race. They want to race. Once they know how to sail, they're like, we are going to have a race out to this island that is three miles away. Was it Greenpoint Island? Something like that. that. It's three miles away from the, from the shore that, that, that their town is suddenly on <laughs> for convenient narrative purposes. <laughs> so they have a race and then they tie and it's like, oh, okay, well, we better have a rematch and we better invite small children on our boats with us. <laughs> because the racing instructor says, like, you both passed your course, you're allowed to sail without an instructor now, but you can't sail alone. So I'll bring a four-year-old. He's got my back. <laughs> it's like, I can't, I'm really concerned about, like, when they get their driver's permits, where they're like, but I can't drive alone. <laughs> I'll bring Jamie Newton. It's fine. <laughs> He'll be, like, seven then. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's fine. <laughs> bunch of kids you know they have teams in each boat they're doing this race suddenly the weather starts to change and they get kind of veered off course and a storm ends up coming and it leaves them stranded on a deserted island like don's boat gets destroyed there is a dramatic moment where they have to throw all the supplies from her boat over to claudia's boat and then she has to get the kids over to claudia's boat in this rollicking storm but they can't actually get on the boat because the boats are too little to carry that many people so they just have to like hold on to the sides it's very dramatic yes yes it is it is very intense for these 13 year old (laughs) girls and their four and seven year old charges um, so they they stay on. They find this island, which is not the island they were racing Supposed towards. To it's a different island, and they manage to get ashore and find shelter in a cave. And then they have to wait out the storm and wait to be rescued. And it kind of it cuts back and forth between them on the island doing their. So if you've never read a super special before. The chapters alternate viewpoints, and they all start with handwritten diary entries from the point of view of the character whose chapter it is. If you've never read any Babysitter's Club books before, this is the thing that happens in the regular series occasionally, too. Each babysitter has their own distinctive handwriting. So you- I had forgotten about Stacy with the hearts on the eyes, oh. and when I got to it in the super special, I, like, almost threw my book out the bus window. I was like, forget... And when I say that, I mean my phone, which I was reading. <laughs> I was like, Stacy, you son of a bitch! <laughs> For the record, you can download all of those fonts. I have them all. <laughs> oh my god. god. <laughs> Kate's going to be writing some solid babysitter's club fan fanfic soon. I actually did once for Yuletide, but I'm we'll get to that I'm sure later. you did. So it's cutting back and forth between Dawn and Claudia on the island with the kids, and everyone back in Stony Brook who are trying to launch a rescue for them and figure out where they are, and the sort of building media frenzy around these missing girls and children. Which, while I did grow up on a coastal town, I grew up in a poor coastal town, and there was no sailing. Like, you couldn't even go to the beach in my town because it was just covered in needles. But, (laughs) like, straight up. Like, that's, you don't go to that beach. But, like, I just thought it was a funny turn where they were like, they're not back yet. Next step, look for wreckage. And I was just like, (laughs) that seemed harsh. I was like, 
like, they're like, we all gotta look for wreckage. We gotta look for wreckage. Everyone's walking the beach to look for wreckage. Get in a boat and look for wreckage. <laughs> and I was like, that seems pessimistic. Is this how boat searches usually go? I also... I mean, like, they're they're 13, and there was a huge thunderstorm while they're out, and it's hours later, and they're not back yet. I feel like the pessimism maybe was warranted. I guess. It was, it's interesting, too. I did, I did like the way that the media frenzy kind of built around these missing girls and children, because that is totally believable, that every news outlet would vulture around, you know, looking for either the picture of the dead bodies of the four-year-old being pulled out of the ocean, or... The triumphant return of the survivors of this, you know, two mile off the coast (laughs) shipwreck. I did think it was, there's a lot of like kind of uh, obviously created drama where like Marianne and Dawn, the stepsisters, got into a big fight. Everyone was fighting with their boyfriend inexplicably. He's like, yeah. why? You're not, you're not on an island. Shut up. And then Christy, like, she has to cancel her softball game because, you know, her friends and charges are missing and she's distraught. And her boyfriend's like, I think you're just doing it because you don't think you can beat us. And also then he was just like, I don't see why it matters. Yeah. And she's like, two of them are on the team? Yeah. Like, like <laughs> they're a part of this. <laughs> Jesus, Bart, dump his ass, Christy. Jesus. And then later, when he calls back to apologize, he's like, well, you exaggerate sometimes, so I didn't know if I should believe you. And apparently Bart had just not turned on the TV in two days. Because <laughs> it's literally the only thing going on in the entire town. Yeah. It was... It was. It's, it's a general rule that straight dudes are the worst. I learned, <laughs> yeah, my, my, so. my big takeaway from the super special is like, 13-year-old boys are the worst! <laughs> but I also knew that in my soul. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they, on the island, they have to scavenge for food, and uh, Jeff, Don's brother, figures out how to catch fish, and they have, like, a limited amount of supplies, mostly candy bars, yeah. that they have to portion out. My other question, this is complete, where they were like, well, we had to throw out the granola bars because they were wet. I was like, how did granola bars come packaged in 1992? <laughs> <laughs> I was real confused about that, because they were, like, packing granola bars. I'm like, that's a good thing. I know they're going to crash. I know how books work. They'll have granola bars and not just candy bars. And they were like, they're all wet with ocean. I mean, maybe, like, their stay-at-home moms made them at home. Probably. Don was like, I made these granola bars, so I know what's in them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's just raisins and grain. I didn't put any sugar in them. They're just held together (laughs) with hope. Veganism problem. <laughs> so I am imagining Dawn now as like a, you know, gluten free, toxin free, vegan, absolutely, who like sits next to you in restaurants and is like, well, you know, you can put that poison in your body, but I'm doing a cleanse where I only drink citric acid, and it's really <laughs> cleaning out my insides, and I feel like a whole better person. I can't believe I was doing that seaweed cleanse last week. Seaweed is garbage. It's ruining your body. <laughs> Which isn't to say there aren't people who need to be gluten-free or have oh, veganism yes, of course, but Don is definitely that person who is like... Oh, yeah. Yes. I, did, I went gluten-free, and I blog about it. Yeah. Dawn does not have a gluten intolerance. Dawn does not have celiacs. Dawn thinks that gluten is giving her future children autism. Oh, God. Oh, God. We're going down a deep, deep hole here, and Dawn is absolutely an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> and meanwhile, we've, like, okay, this, this is solid, but also, 
I am with you 100%. I did in fact hear you when you said, I don't understand how Jeff was fishing because that was my big concern too. Because he had like a piece of no string bait. and a safety pin and he was like, yeah, it was much easier than I thought. And I was like, what are you using as bait, bitch? What? <laughs> You're not just going to be like, ooh, safety pin, nom. Like that's not how fishing works. <sighs> and oh, also man. like, I, I thought Don was a vegetarian and so was Jeff. So the fact that they're like, oh my God, these stupid kids won't eat fish. Was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, it was pretty great. So yeah, they uh, they they survive on candy bars, and like no one drinks water for the first day because Don's just like, I feel like we need to conserve this. Like it was very she was just like, no one drink <laughs> until suddenly I decide we can. And then uh, Claudia comes up with a way to gather collect water while they're there. And Since it keeps storming, these poor children yes. like, just keep storming, and she collects water in a tarp. Which is why they can't find them for, like, three days. They they do do, like, a help sign out of rocks on the shore, so that if people fly over, they'll see them. They did them. it out of seashells, so, seashells. like, rocks might have been slightly visible. But it, it keeps storming, like, every day there's more storms, so nobody is really able to get, like, every time they're out on the water looking for them, after, like, 20 minutes, they're like, oh, we have to go back, because it's storming again. And then... The worst night of Don's life oh, happens. Jamie Newton, the four-year-old. Who had the sniffles before they left, and his mom was very, very concerned about sending him because he had the sniffles. And I was like, maybe if you loved your child, who was four, <laughs> you would be more concerned about sending them on a 13-year-old on a boat by themselves for the first time. But you do you, Mrs. Newton. You do you. I ain't going to tell you how to raise your kids. Wanna just send baby Lucy too? She might like it. She's small, just tack her down on the front of the <laughs> I got real like reading these books, I have never felt older. Like, cause you guys have read that you guys reread them as adults. Yeah. Sort of. Because yeah. I remember you telling me, like, you borrowed a bunch of them from Jen and yeah. you read them when you were in college or something. I literally have not read these since tw- in 22 years. I have not read them since I was 10 years old. And when I was 8 and reading these, I was like, like we were saying, like, 13-year-olds sounded so old and so sophisticated and they had boyfriends and they wore makeup and they were in charge of all these kids. Of course, they're 13. And reading them now, I'm just like, I would not let my children with these children because they're all children. <laughs> and, like... <laughs> Jesse and Mallory are 11. Yeah, no. and Jesse, no, no, no. And Jesse was in charge of her sister and ba- the squirt, how about the squirt? Squirt's like one, right? Yeah. Squirt's youngish. He's a baby. Like under like, two. And her parents are going away for the long weekend and she's an 11 year old left in charge of them for the long weekend by herself. And I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> I don't even think I could stay in the house by myself when I was 11. I could not. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was appalled, and when she has to call her Aunt Cecilia on the emergency numbers because Beck has gone missing on this island, she's like, oh, Aunt Cecilia just keeps blaming me, but like, why did you let her go? And Jesse kept being like, oh, my parents let her go. I didn't give her permission. My parents said this was fine. And Aunt Cecilia's just all muttering under her breath and being like, this is ridiculous and stress cleaning, and that's the person who I related with in all these books. I was like, Aunt Cecilia knows what's up. I mean, to be fair, she should not have been blaming Jesse. God, it was awful. I'm so old. 
Um, but they do. But yes, but yeah. But to go back, we got oh, so distracted. Yeah, so Jamie Newton. <laughs> Jamie Newton starts running a fever and like fucking hallucinates in a cave, <laughs> like you do <laughs> overnight while they're staying up with him. And that's when Don finally decides that people should drink water. <laughs> yeah, it's like terrible, and you know, they, they it's the worst night of her life, and everything's awful. And then the next day, they are eventually rescued. Um, by Deus Ex Mirror. Yes. They just happened to find a mirror in the ground, and they were like, we can use this to signal to planes. And and they do. Yep. <laughs> and they get, they get rescued. Yep. And um, Dawn has, like, a breakdown because Claudia was the one who was, like, cool and chill on the island, and she always thought she had a cool head in crises, but she's garbage when it comes to actual crises. She and, just kept crying, which, yeah. you know, you're 13, you should be, because you're a child on an island in charge of other children. <laughs> I'd cry. I'm 32 years old. <laughs> I'll be like, don't leave me here with a four-year-old lord. <laughs> That's why I don't have kids, guys. I can't handle the pressure. Give them to the 13-year-olds. <laughs> the thing is, like, I... This was, like, my favorite super special when I was a kid. And I think it's because I really loved all of the sort of children's survivalist literature which, in retrospect, is all super unrealistic and ridiculous. But I think, like, rereading this, because I had remembered it as they get stuck on a desert island off the coast of Connecticut, and that seems so inherently absurd, I was actually surprised by how relatively realistic things were. Like, when they have to put all the stuff into Claudia's boat and get to the island, like, that felt like real drama, and Claudia's solutions to things like finding the rainwater, like other than Jeff's fishing, I did feel like a lot of the stuff was more realistic and better handled than I remembered. And in addition to the media frenzy. And so if you're going to write a book with an inherently terrible premise, I feel like you could do a lot worse. All right. Any other final thoughts on Island Adventure? I just love that it's called Island. Like we... In all our talking about this, we just kept calling it the super special, so I literally didn't know which one it was called. And Island Adventure is, given how all of the other, some of the other super specials work, there's one where they like, they all rent like, Christy's rich stepdad gets like a giant cabin for them and they all go like, I don't even know, it's not like they're glamping? I don't know. (laughs) Like they're not like camping, but they're all in a cabin and kind of like just hanging out and like... Island Adventure just sounds like we all went to Hawaii, which I'm sure they also have done. They, they have. Aloha babysitters. Yeah. What's that one? See? It's also an island adventure. I was just like, you couldn't have referenced the tragedy? I don't know. Whatever. That's a funny title. It made me laugh. <laughs> I will say, so, like, the very end of this book is them all, like, talking about the lessons that they learned over the course of the book. And they really ran the gamut. Like, Claudia learning that she had value and just because she's not good at school doesn't mean she doesn't have other intelligences was actually really good. And then you have something like Jesse's lesson being like, I really hate Aunt Cecilia. Right. (laughs) She's 11. She's not as sophisticated. (laughs) Okay. So it was hit or miss. So the third book that we read was Ducky Number 3, which was one of the California Diaries. Which was a series that didn't start coming out, I think, until much later, like the late 90s, mm-hmm. which covered Dawn after she moved back to California. She starts a another babysitting club with her friends there called the We Love Kids Club. And this series sort of covered 
much more adult. The it starts off the series starts off with the middle school, the eighth grade being absorbed by the high school. So this was kind of like this middle ground between young adult and middle grade. Like they were still super short and not very deep. But the series covered things like eating disorders and abusive boyfriends and Ducky sort of being gay, but we never say that word. Yeah, and that's what this last book is about. I mean, it also covered parental death. That book was really well handled. Like, I like that you describe it as being sort of a bridge between middle grades and YA because they do feel like YA topics. It's just that they are super short because they are all written in diary style. Uh, and I think that that would get tiring over much longer. So it's probably for the best. Yeah. So I didn't read these when they were coming out. By that time, I had kind of transitioned away from Babysitter's Club for the most part. And like uh, Becca, I was never a huge fan of Dawn. So they didn't really appeal to me until much, much later uh, when Jen actually said... Sorry, I just remembered that Dawn's an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no wonder I don't like her. <laughs> Carry on. I think, I think we were at Six Flags talking about them. Uh, the Babysitter's Club books in general, and you said to me, like, oh, like, have you ever read The California Diaries? When I told you no, you were like, oh, well, you have to read them and kind of describe them to me. And I was like, oh, that's totally different than what I thought. And you lent me all of them, and I, like, read them all over one weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And they are, they are pretty intense. And this one is, it's intense, but it's like, much like the racism book, it is very much an issue book that never actually is able to name the issue. Good lord. This is very much a book about Ducky realizing that he's gay, but then at the last minute it takes a left turn and it's that's not what it is. It, it's very peculiar. Yeah. <laughs> like it's I mean the 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 plot is that he is really good friends with Okay, so Ducky is 16, uh but all of his friends are 13-year-old girls, which <laughs> Now that I'm older, is a little bit weird. Uh, But, you know, they were all in high school now, so let's roll with that. And he is super close with Sunny, who is the only character, uh, or or the character we got to know the best before California Diaries started. She was Dawn's best friend back in California, uh, and she had, uh, in the series, in the California Diaries series, had recently lost her mother. Uh, But she and Ducky were super close. Ducky worked at her father's bookstore, and all of a sudden people are like, oh my god, Sunny totally likes you, and Ducky starts flipping out uh, at the idea that Sonny might have a crush on him and he doesn't know how to handle this and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know why he doesn't feel that way. And she like stealth asks him on a date and then kisses him at the end and he doesn't kiss her back and he's like, I don't understand. Why don't I feel anything? And then she has to be the one to say like, hey, look, you know, don't worry about it. I understand. And then it kind of peters out after that. It's- it was funny because like, you guys kind of kept describing it as it took a turn towards something else. And when I was reading it, I was reading it last night, like a cool kid doing their homework 10 minutes before class. It didn't. It just stopped. She was just like, oh, it's cool. Don't worry about it. I'd unkiss you if I could stop stressing. And he was like, okay. And that was it. No conclusion reach. It was just like, don't kiss people if you don't know their feelings seem to be the moral of this book. And also that, like, friendship can be just as important and meaningful as relationships, which is a pretty good moral. Yes. 
but it just got so close to the precipice and then was like, no, no, no. Yeah. I have to wonder if that was some kind of dictate at the time. Like, it just, it's so obviously a book that wants to be that, that the fact that it isn't is sort of boggling. And I think the connection to the actual BSC series prevented it from being certain things in the same way that, I don't know, like you can get away with certain things in comics if they're not tied to characters that sell toothpaste and the babysitters club are definitely a franchise that sells toothpaste not literally i don't think but <laughs> i mean <laughs> possibly if that they had it pretty deep i would have bought it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's and even just remembering like i haven't read the rest of them in a while i guess i read all these probably was like 2007 2008 it was after i graduated from college but before i moved here but I, I felt like it wasn't just this book. Like, it was definitely a thing that reading them as a woman in my mid-twenties who knew a lot about kids lit and who knew a lot about queer kids lit, like, it was very obvious that this was what it was building up to and then it never happened. The thing is, like, it was also obvious, I think, to the target audience. Because the target audience is, like, upper middle schoolers, I think. Uh, maybe, like, ninth grade. And that was about the time that it came out for me. And this is sort of personal story time. But the reason that I'm so attached to this book is because I, in eighth grade, developed a crush on my closest male friend. He had recently come out as bisexual, but that was, he was using that as a stepping stone. Uh, I re- bisexuality obviously is a real thing, but he wasn't. But he came out as bi, but I had a crush on him and I like admitted it to him in this weird, like having him accidentally discover a, a love poem I'd written way because I was a loser child. And he had to be like, I'm really sorry. I don't really. And then like he came out as gay about a year later. And in the midst of all of this, this book came out and I read it and it was like I was seeing his side of the story. And that was really important to me as a 14-year-old. And I think because, you know, I was, I was a 14-year-old straight girl, but reading this, I absolutely knew, like, okay, Ducky is gay. And I'd sort of figured that out earlier in the series, too. It's not like this is the first time there were any hints. But I think it's obvious, even hopefully, to most of the target audience, what this book is trying to get to. And I wonder how much that counts for, or if it is just sort of a failure because they can't name the thing they're talking about. Yeah, it's one of those things where I feel like it would probably be really interesting to hear what was going on in that editing room, Mm -hmm. because I'm sure there was a discussion about it, and I'm sure that there was probably at least one person pulling for it, and, you know, like, you're right, this was a brand. This was a brand, and it was a brand that was deep in the hearts of middle American 12-year-old girls, and that meant something. And, you know, sometimes the best of intentions mean that you kind of falter and no one knows it. No one will ever know that this was a thing that you were trying to do, mm-hmm. and it was going to be great. And then someone higher up in the food chain wouldn't let it happen. Yep. And that's, I mean, that's just how publishing works. Yeah. And and hopefully in this particular instance, and, and you would know better than I do, like, Things are slightly better in middle grade lit these days, but I mean, this was 16 years ago. Yeah, they definitely are. They're not great yet. For a while, most of the queer themes that you got in middle grade lit were like, so-and-so has lesbian parents or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, More recently, you know, you've got more queer middle grade protagonists. You've got the Better Nate Than Ever series. 
I love those books. Which is great. They are great. And then um, more recently, you've got George, which is about a trans kid, which is amazing. It's a great book. And it's amazing that it exists, that it is a book that kids now, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids now are going to read and absorb and have in their worldview going forward. Like, that just is, is so great to me. That's awesome. You know, it's definitely more allowed now. If it was like a pre-established series, like, well, Rick Riordan, Rick Riordan was able to, to do it. So maybe, maybe things have changed for the better. Uh, Rick Riordan wrote the uh, Lightning Thief series, and there was a queer character who came out over the course of that series. So yeah, like, I feel like things have gotten better. I mean, even just in, in YA back then, for a long time, any books about queer characters that came out in young adult fiction were about how hard it was to be gay, how if you were gay, your family would reject you and your friends would reject you. But thankfully, hopefully you would have one cool straight friend who would accept you for who you were and help you to see that, you know, you weren't a failure and that life would be okay for you. And that narrative has changed. You know, there's not a ton of queer representation and there's not a ton especially of non-white male queer representation in YA yet. But there's more. There's definitely stuff out there. And anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is lying to you. There's definitely books that, that go all across the spectrum now. And they're about just having a life and being happy and trying to get the boy you like to like you back and figure out who you have a crush on and things like that, too, which is nice. Like, it's nice that they're not all about how hard it is to be gay. There are books out there where sometimes people in them just happen to be gay. So that's that. My feelings on that, that were maybe lengthy. No, those are good. I'm, I'm glad to, to hear about that. I mean, I've read the Better Nate Than Ever books, and, and well, we're going to have more stuff in Reader's Advisory, but it is good to hear that things are at least slightly better for, for kids who are in the middle grade age range who need those narratives. All right. Any other thoughts about the California Diaries? Or the babysitters as a whole. Should we talk about the second person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I I had never like I said I'd never read any of the California Diaries before, and I personally like until recently when I started going back and reading a lot of a lot more YA books. I didn't even read a lot of first person books. I was very off put by first person and now I've kind of gotten used to it and I'm like, oh, people know how to do it. But the Ducky book is a diary, which already is like a gimmicky conceit, but sure, fine. But he writes it in the second person. <laughs> and I'm like, nobody writes in a diary like that, Duck Boy. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was definitely weird even at the time. The other the girls who have their their diaries are are not writing in They just write like a normal person writes they, they their write, diary. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why this choice was made. It was I don't very know. Strange. I'm not sure if if the same person wrote all of the ducky books. This this one is attributed to Nola Thacker, but who even knows? And then there were, like, a couple times where, like, without mentioning it, it is in the first person. There's, like, two sentences. I want to say around when Sonny kisses him. I could be wrong. Yeah. And then there's one point later on where he definitely, like, consciously says, you know, you feel this. And they go, no, I, I feel this. And I was just like, what's going on? Like, it was I... very strange to me. And it was kind of a trudge to read, considering how freaking short it is. It took me forever 
I think the idea was that this is a guy who is so disconnected from his identity that he can't even talk about himself in... Like, I think that's what they were going for, whether or not it was successful. And if it's something that, like, given that this seems to be a book that was supposed to be pushing towards a revelation, if once he had that revelation and then they did something with the style and it changed so that it looked like it had a point, I don't know. (laughs) All right, here from Dr. Wikipedia. He's a doctor now? Good for him. Number one was written by Anna Martin. Numbers two, three, four, five, six, nine, ten, and fourteen were written by Peter Larangis. Number seven, eight, and thirteen by Jean Betancourt. And number fifteen by Nola Thacker. This was the only one she did. Okay. Wait, so who did five and ten? Because those would have been the other Ducky books. Those were both Peter Larangis. Okay, so I'm blaming him for the second actual books now. I mean, (laughs) yeah, you guys read the actual all these other ones. What did the other Ducky books read like this? Yes, yeah, they were in the second person. They were all in the second person like this. Okay, interesting. Oh, I also wanted to say that the the font chosen for Ducky's handwriting is all caps, and the kerning makes it so that if you have the L and the I next to each other, it looks like a U, and that makes the fact that he keeps referring to movies as flicks. A really big problem. (laughs) (laughs) At one one point, he's like, at the post-fuck dinner, and I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a far more interesting book. (laughs) Yeah, there's no font, thank God, in the Kindle for the Ducky books. There is font for the girls in their journal entries for the Babysitter's Club. All right, we ready to do some dramatic readings? We are ready to do some dramatic readings. So I'm going to start. We're going to do one dramatic reading from each book, and one person is going to read each dramatic reading because there are so many characters and there are only three of us. So I'm going to start by reading from Keep Out Claudia. Uh, This is a little bit after the babysitters have had their revelation about the racism of the Lowells, and they're having a follow-up conversation about what they're going to do now. The rest of the members of the BSC trickled in, and by 5.30, Christy was ready to begin the meeting. Any club business? she asked after she'd called us to order. Yeah, I replied. The Lowells. Six heads turned slowly toward me. The Lowells, Jesse repeated. I guess we could consider them unfinished business, said Christine. We haven't talked about them in a while. Claude's right. We need to. Why? asked Stacy, sounding whiny. What are you complaining about, oh blonde-haired, blue-eyed one? I asked. They didn't say you were funny-looking. Exactly. How do you think I feel, being approved (laughs) of by Mrs. Lowell? I don't want her approval. It's like, if she approves of me, then what's wrong with me? Something must be. See what I mean? I understand, said Don. But how come you let Mrs. Lowell affect how you feel about yourself? Stacy paused. I don't know, she said. Anyway, that isn't the point, said Christy. The point is, what if Mrs. Lowell calls the club again, wanting another sitter? Do you think she's going to? asked Stacy. Christy shrugged. Who knows? She might. Or what if the kids show up at a band rehearsal one day? That could happen, too, I said. Well, I think we need to teach the Lowells a lesson, Mal spoke up. How? asked Don. I'm not sure, but I want to get back at them for the way they treated Claudia and Jessie. That was rude and mean and, and, well, dumb. How are we going to teach Mrs. Lowell a lesson? asked Christy. We're just a bunch of kids. 
Oh, now you're a bunch of kids when you're stranded on an <laughs> island with a bunch of... <laughs> the next time she calls, we should just tell her we're not going to sit for her family anymore because we don't like bigots, I said hotly. Claudia, you know darn well we cannot say that, Christy replied. Okay, well, we don't... We'll say we don't sit for blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. Claudia, geez, cried Don. Stace and I are blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. Besides, if we say anything like that, we're no better than the Lowells. That's bigoted, too. Isn't there a term for that, said Stacy? Reverse something or other? Oh, who cares, I said. You know, we really ought to teach Caitlin, Mackie, and Celeste a lesson, said Mal. But not a mean one. Just that most people are nice. If we don't do that and they grow up prejudiced, it'll be our fault. No, it won't, interrupted Jessie. It'll be their parents' fault. It's already their parents' fault. And then there's an interlude where they take a couple phone calls. Okay. The Lowells, Christy said to us. We haven't made a decision yet. I have an idea, said Jessie. I think if Mrs. Lowell calls the BSC again, we should just tell her that no one can take the job. If that happens a few times, she'll stop calling. I guess, I replied with a sigh. But then nobody has learned anything except us. And we didn't need the lessons we learned. Maybe teaching the Lowells a lesson isn't our job, said Don. You know we can do one thing, said Jessie. What? The rest of us practically pounced on her. We can be good examples for the kids we sit for. For all of them, whether they have prejudiced ideas or not. Yeah, exclaimed Stacy. Then she added, more seriously, but we don't want to impose our ideas on them. No, agreed Jessie. We can just show them how to be good neighbors. Everyone was silent for a few moments. Then I said, you know what? This may be hard to believe, but I can't hate the Lowells. I feel as though I ought to hate them, but I just can't. My parents, spoke up Mal, say it's okay to hate some of the things people do, but it's not okay to hate the people who do them. Here's the thing, Christy, my dude. As the person who runs a business, you absolutely can be, especially because your kid's not running a real business, like we're going to get into a whole, like, can you deny service to a person? You can say, as kids, we're not comfortable working with you. And I know that, like, in middle grade and YA books, like, the parents aren't supposed to step in, like, the kids are supposed to be running the show, and they do, but I feel like this has been a good opportunity for them to be there, but have the parents back them, and show that their parents were supportive of them doing this, and saying, yeah, you don't have to work with people who make you uncomfortable, and it's okay to say, you know, we don't feel okay working with you, and it probably would be best for both of us if you found other sitters. Yeah. Especially because, yeah. like, Christy has this whole thing where she sits down with her parents... And with, with her grandmother, and yeah. is like, I think they might be racist. And all the parents are saying are like, damn. Like, <laughs> they have nothing to offer on the matter. And I'm like, holy shit, are you not concerned for these girls in your life? Yeah. Like, I, I feel like when she says, like, we can't tell them that they're bigots and we won't sit for them, I'm like, sure, sure as hell can. And I mean, like, yeah. and they're, they're very concerned about, like, we, they're adults, we have to be respectful. And yeah. I'm like, it's a great time to be like, you don't always have to be respectful to adults who don't respect you, like. Yeah. You know, and even if, like, you don't always have to be respectful, but there are respectful ways to exactly. say, like. You still disengage. You know, we're sorry, like, you hold views that, you know, just don't fit with the business that we're trying to run, and we don't think that you'll enjoy being our client anymore, and we really don't have room for your values in our company, or, you know, business, whatever <laughs> But And this book, it just, like, it keeps dancing around, like, what they can and can't say, 
And and that part where Stacy's like, but we don't want to impose our ideas on them. Like the idea that you shouldn't be racist. Yeah. I'm okay with the babysitters imposing those ideas. Right. But they have to like. There's definitely a presumed white middle class audience for these books, and so it's like we can teach a lesson, but in the most sort of off, like hands off way we possibly can. And that made me appreciate the moments where it it does at least, I don't know, like the part earlier where Chrissy's talking to her grandmother and she's like, yeah, I thought things would get better as I got older and they haven't. And I was like, yeah, that was, I'm glad that this book said that. And then it does stuff like reverse something or other. (laughs) So that's the racist book. Uh, Becca's going to go next with an excerpt from the Desert Island book. I'm going to be reading The Longest Night of Dawn's Life. (laughs) Where she is looking after sick four-year-old Jamie Newton, who should be home bed with parents who love him, but is stuck on an island with 13-year-old girls. The longest night of my life had begun. I sat with Jamie while Claude napped a little. Then I woke Jamie up to give him some more water. Oh, he cried, stay away. I had a feeling he didn't mean me. Sure enough, the next words out of his mouth were, it's a tiger, it's a tiger. I gave him the water anyway. When he had finished drinking, he kicked off the blanket. I'm so hot, he murmured, but soon he was shivering again. We needed half a layer of blanket. Stop, snake, Jamie cried out. Claude, wake up, I whispered. Hmm, she rolled over sleepily. I think Jamie's delirious. That woke her up. What, she said, sitting up. Delirious? He's crying out in his sleep. Stuff about tigers and snakes? Maybe he's just dreaming. I hope so, I said. How can you tell the difference? I don't know. Claude, what if we catch this from Jamie? What are the others going to do if we both get sick? Claudia thought for a moment. She rubbed her eyes. Do you think Jeff can manage the little kids all by himself? He is pretty responsible. Yeah, I think he could manage them. Uh Uh-oh, what if the kids get sick, all of them? Can we nurse four kids? Or what if... Don, stop thinking about the what-ifs. You're making me crazy. Really. And you're overlooking something important. What? We might get rescued. We could all be home by tomorrow night home, where there were doctors and mothers. You know what I want more than anything right now? I whispered. Claudia shook her head. My mom, I said. Me too. But we couldn't have our moms, so I took a nap. Solid. (laughs) (laughs) I woke up when Jamie began shrieking about snoring trees. I gave him some water. Then Claudia napped. All night we took turns napping, keeping the fire going, and caring for Jamie. I didn't think our patient was getting any better, though. I like, they're like, okay, who's in charge if we die? <laughs> Jeff, Jeff's good with kids. Like, what about Jamie? Jamie could do it. Jamie's four. <laughs> junior, junior, junior member. It's fine. <laughs> he is only allowed to babysit in ten years. <laughs> oh. uh, yep. Okay. That's about how that book went, through and through. So our last dramatic reading is from Ducky's book, and Jen's going to handle that one. August 21st. Guy things. Friends. I'm not very good at guy things, and I just don't get it. It's like all the other guys have this book of rules that someone forgot to give me. Or maybe I got the book, but some of the pages were left out. Or maybe I got a different book? Is there more than one book on how to be a guy? Like, guys are supposed to be cool, not too emotional, bored with girl things. Shopping is stopping on the street to admire a set of wheels. Or a retrofitted Harley, maybe. Cooking is what you do with a microwave and a frozen pizza. 
guys watch sports on television. They play sports. They talk about chicks and babes. The gross loser Cro-Mags can get pretty graphic about it, thinking, pathetically, that they're being super studs. Not all guys are like that, of course, but most sort of fit along the spectrum. At one end are Cro-Mags, and in the middle are ordinary guys, and what am I? Am I a failed guy? So young? Wait a minute. Just because I'm not in love with Sunny doesn't make me a failure. And there are plenty of guys who cook, aka rich and famous chefs, and like cool clothes, rock stars, movie guys. Still, if I understood this whole guy thing, would I feel so freaked out about Sunny? I work in a bookstore. Where on the shelves is the book on how to be a guy? There's like seven question marks. 10.55 a.m. Wherein you learn that you can't tell a book by its cover. You listen to a lame joke for the 1,000th time. Hi, read any good books lately? You smile at the lame customer who looks like a walking sports logo billboard. Although you're not sure what the sports are exactly. Mountain biking and snowboarding, maybe? And try to be glad that he is at least talking to you like a human being and not a robot only there to serve him. You steer him to the... Poetry section. Poetry? Him? It's what he asked for. Gotta shelve books. 12.30. Shelved. Boxed returns. Labeled boxes. Oof. Poetry guy's still there. Two books under his arm. Head buried in a third. You head in his direction to see who his poets of choice are. It's a mix. Whitman, Adrian Rich, and Baudelaire. Maybe I'll have to check them out sometime. So... Yeah, as you can see, it had this random first-person part, and then all of a sudden it was back in the weird second person. But I chose that bit because it's sort of the part of the book that gets closest to confirming what the book is obviously about, where he's like, I don't know how to be a guy, and then all of a sudden this dude comes in wanting poetry, and all of the poets that he is reading are queer. (laughs) So like, it's very pointed, it's very basically whoever was pulling for this to actually be a gay book, was trying their hardest to get as close to that line as they could without getting in trouble. Like, that's very much what that section reads like. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So that was a whole book of that in the second person. Not in handwriting for us, but just imagine reading it in handwriting. I'd rather not. I would rather do some would-you-rathers. Oh! Just so you know, Kate and I are recording across from each other, and there's been a lot of finger guns. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The first would you rather is, would you rather be stuck on a desert island off the coast of Connecticut or manage an amateur band of 20 plus children? I'm going to have to go with stuck on a desert island because they were rescued after like three days. And also, I feel like I'm an adult who is possibly better suited to uh, thinking of things than these kids were. Uh, Whereas they were training that band of kids for like weeks. And that sounds really, really exhausting. And I like fiddler on the roof on like coffee can drums. There was like 15 drummers out of this group. Like, Oh God, I am with you on the Island. Oh man. Yeah. I also think that I'm with you on an Island on the Island. Um, after having to, I don't think it was a band. I did, I did have to manage a group of kids doing something similar once. It was much less than 20 and it was stressful enough. I couldn't do 20, uh, especially that young. And uh, the island seems nice. Like, that seems like a nice vacation. 
uh, you know, just a couple days waiting to be rescued with the beach right there. Like, I'm into it. You wouldn't have your cell phone or a computer, Kate. Well, that's fine. I'll nap a lot and swim. <laughs> All right. Next, would you rather? Would you rather be the protagonist of a late 90s queer coming of age novel that can't use the word gay? Or the protagonist of a mid-aughts queer coming-of-age novel about how hard it is to be gay? I think I would wind up going with the first one. I, I am straight, so I do not have actual experience being either of these models, thankfully. But at least it seems like the 90s ones were happy sometimes, if only because they were not actually allowed to talk about the subject at hand. But that's really a depressing set of possibilities uh i'm really torn because you're right in that the the late 90s one does seem to be like kind of happy but there's like not a lot of kissing girls that would go on in it and that's you know that's on my my maslow's hierarchy of needs <laughs> somewhere <laughs> kissing girls i'm pretty kissing sure girls internet yeah books <laughs> ghost hunters <laughs> i want to see this pyramid <laughs> i will draw it after this it It'll be site. a special post on the website, I was going to say. <laughs> you can find that at worstbestsellers.com. <laughs> uh, so I, I, gosh, you know, I think I'll, I'll go with the, the mid-aughts queer coming-of-age novel, because at least in the mid-aughts, in another, you know, few years, I'll have grown into the better time period where I can just be gay with people and not have to worry about homophobia being the main purpose of my existence as a character. I guess I will be in the mid-aughts as well, just because I find weird fixations on, like, not hearing the word. As someone who's bisexual, like, a little alarm bells go off in my head whenever anyone even says the word, because it's not said at all. So I'd like to at least be bisexual and miserable, <laughs> rather than just nebulous and fine, I guess. <laughs> Let's be real, Ducky's still kind of miserable, even if nothing is terrible in this book. Like, and sure, he's gonna be okay eventually, I think, but, you know, he's not great at the moment. He should maybe stop modeling his masculinity on John Wayne. <laughs> right? Like, all teenage boys in 2000 totally did, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. And, like, but for real, like, get some 16-year-old girlfriends, at least. Yeah. Like, those 13-year-olds yeah. are not gonna be like they're, they're kind of in high school i guess because of the school merging but they're not in high school man they're not getting ready for college college is gonna be great for you ducks it's gonna be great it, it will be excellent <laughs> gonna kiss some boys right. it's really gonna change your it's life awesome and our final would you rather would you rather date a grown-up version of logan or bart or try your luck on christianmingle.com i'm pretty sure grown-up logan is on christianmingle.com <laughs> Bart, I don't know. <laughs> um, Logan and Bart were the worst, and I can feel like knowing dudes, they tend to just get worse with <laughs> Like, as Bart especially. Logan, I hold out hope for. Logan seems like a solid dude who's just 13 in these books, and when he gets older, I think he might get rational. Bart is probably... Bart's pretty garbage. Bart's pretty garbage. <laughs> so, um... Bart's one of those guys on Twitter who's like, why don't we have Men's <laughs> Rights Month? Men's Appreciation Month. Exactly. Exactly. And then grown-up Christy kills him. <laughs> oh, 
I'd read all these books. I, of course, would have to stick with our beloved sponsor, ChristianMingle.com. Uh, if only because those guys are definitely garbage, and at least there's a chance of not having a garbage guy on ChristianMingle.com. Not that I'm really interested in. Say. You're lo- this is a lose 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 for you. It's always a lose lose for me. <laughs> I, you know, I might, I might at least see how grown up versions of Logan or Bart turned out, because maybe they did get better. Maybe they are not as terrible as they were at thirteen. And you know, this doesn't have to be a long term thing. But I just really don't think I would mesh with anyone who was on ChristianMingle.com. Despite the fact that they are your, your wonderful sponsors, uh, I, I think I will have to pass on that. So I will take my chances uh, with Logan and or Bart and probably dump them immediately. I'm with you on Logan or Bart just because I think the Christian Mingle joke is played out after a year as the editor. <laughs> <laughs> Get a new sponsor. <laughs> you haven't seen a dime. I haven't seen a dime from them, Okay. <laughs> And like I said, I think Logan would turn out okay. Bart, you know, he's probably like a really good kisser, but then he's like, I don't understand why we need feminism, but then you could have some real solid arguments with him and then maybe slap him around a bit. Okay, he's 13 in the books. Let's stop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I think about you, Christian Mingle. All right. Good game. Good game. Uh, Let's move on now to Reader's Advisory, where we suggest books to read instead of or in addition to the books that we read today. So I'm going to start us off. I I did like three sections, one for each book. So uh, real quick for Ducky's book, I definitely would recommend you read anything by David Levithan that's written for teens or even The Lover's Dictionary, which was written for adults. Queer kids who get to be queer kids and say words like gay and it's nice for them. Uh, so that should definitely go on your list. If you want to read more Kids Stranded Places book, I'm sure you all know to read Hatchet and all of its sequels. And uh, let's throw out um, Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. If you'd like to read a book written by an actual person of color about children dealing with racial fallout like that. And I am going to recommend the uh, Babysitter's Club graphic novel adaptations by Raina Telgemeier. Uh, I believe she only did the first four books, but they are a delight. Um, that Her art is beautiful, um, and the adaptations are really strong, and kids are still reading them today. Um, I went on a, a mission to find Keep Out Claudia, where I visited like four different libraries trying to find it, and a lot of librarians had gotten rid of their BSC collections, but they all had these graphic novels uh, because they still are so popular and great with kids. And everything by Raina Telkemeyer is really good, um, and I would also, particularly in this case, recommend drama, um, because it all also, it's an original graphic novel, and it has queer characters, and it is for middle grades. Uh, I think it was the first middle grades book that I had read that had kid queer characters, uh, so I highly recommend that as well. I will second the recommendation for Hatchet, because I definitely love that book. And there was a second one, there was The River, there was a sequel. I didn't read the other ones after, I didn't know there were ones after it, because... Brian's Winter! (laughs) Whoa. But, like, yeah, I definitely love that kind of, like, survival kid stuff. I read, like, My Side of the Mountain, which was a little different, because that kid was just like, ah, fuck it, I'm just go live in the woods. And I'm like, you can't? (laughs) 
And then there was the other side of the mountain where his sister was like, fuck it, I can go too. But I was super down for that kind of just like, yeah, I want to learn about like living in the woods and shit. And I just thought of I'll Give You the Sun by Jandy Nelson. Yeah. Which is like a good mix of like kind of both sides that we're talking about of like, you know, kind of tragic. And there's a lot of like, he deals with like, he's a very, you know, artistic, quiet, kid and then when he gets older in 16 he's the jock and he's trying to fit in with that group of people and this was a great book all around like definitely read this book no matter yeah. what i not explaining it at all but it's an excellent it book. is excellent it was our town's um book club book a couple months ago so we both ended up reading it and it's 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 phenomenal it's really good read it that sounds awesome all right, well, we'll have these and some others up on our website at worstbestsellers.com where you can take a look at them and, you know, browse our recommendations. And uh, next up is our candy pairing where much like a restaurant might suggest a fine wine to go with your meal, we will be suggesting some candy to go with these Babysitter Club books. So to start off, my candy pairing would be a candy necklace because they're mass-produced, and much like these books, trying to masquerade as issue books, it presents itself as something that it's really not. Well, two things, really, because it's not particularly good as candy or a necklace, so it, you can kind of They just were just sticky. Like, come yeah, on. Who thought this was a good idea? Uh, my candy pairing is uh, technically not a candy, I guess, but I think it counts. Fruit by the Foot, because it is something that I have not really tried since the 90s, and is a lot shorter than I remember. <laughs> I once listed Ativan as my candy pairing, so you're good. <laughs> 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 my candy pairing was Noun Leaders, where they seem fine and perfectly enjoyable when you're a kid, and then you eat them as an adult, and you're more li likely to just pull out a filling, and there are way better ways to enjoy something like that without all the anguish. Alright, good candies, everyone. And uh, now we're going to move on to a version of everyone's favorite game, Rock, Paper, Snicked, where I will describe who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he was in this book. And in the absence of Renata, Becca will describe who Wolverine would be if he was in this book. And Jennifer, as our guest, will decide... Uh, which one of those sounds better, or she can choose paper, which is to leave the book, or books in this case, as they are. Uh, we did actually narrow it down to one book. We are doing uh, Keep Out Claudia in specific. So, if Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, he would be a trusted advisor of the Babysitter's Club. Because, you know, come on, a bunch of 13-year-olds basically in charge of every kid in town. There really should have been at least some adult supervision, and while I understand, and I am a huge advocate of adults not meddling... <laughs> Uh, with children in um, middle grade novels and young adult novels, uh, you got to make it at least a little believable. Anyway, uh, as their advisor, he mostly lets them do their own thing, being they're the most capable 13-year-olds ever to exist. But there's he's always there if they need someone to talk to about tough issues or, like, sign for bank paperwork or whatever, because I'm sure there's, like, business shit going on that they can't do themselves as 13-year-olds. You know, he has a car at the very least, so... Instead of having a family meeting, Christy tells The Rock about her suspicions about Mrs. Lowell's racism, and he completely agrees with her assessment and directly confronts Mrs. Lowell about her treatment of Claudia and Jesse, making her apologize to them in front of her kids so the kids recognize that what she did was wrong and hopefully do learn a little bit of a lesson there. 
Uh, he also gives the kids some more diverse books and movies to watch and talks to them a little bit about how everyone is different and that's okay and we need to embrace it. Um, when he's finally done with all of that, he gives the uh, babysitter some ally sensitivity training because, <laughs> yeah. If Wolverine were in this book, everyone would notice because he is frequently a drawing or Hugh Jackman. <laughs> but if Dr. Sam Beckett from the hit show Quantum Leap were in this book, <laughs> he would be driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. That's right, my dudes, we're doing Rock, Paper, Leap. Wow. <laughs> if Dr. Sam Beckett were in this book, he would probably have leapt into, like, Claudia's dad, because when Sam leapt into a character that was a race or gender different from his own, you knew it was going to be an episode about racism or sexism, yet could still be 100% focused on a white dude, which the media has told me for decades is the American dream. <laughs> the book would play out entirely the same way, because the adults are so rarely involved in these books. But that conversation in the kitchen between Mr. Kishi, Claudia, and Janine would end with Sam giving an impassioned speech like, don't worry, people of color in the future, which if you are unfamiliar with the show was the year 1999. Oh my God. <laughs> don't worry, people of color in the future. Racism is basically gone and everyone works together and is nice to each other. And no one looks down on anyone else. Take it from me, a cishet white male with seven doctoral degrees. <laughs> And because we were in an episode of Quantum Leap, the girls would just accept this and be encouraged by it. <laughs> and later, there would probably be an encounter where Sam as Mr. Kishi would have, would roundhouse kick Mr. Lowell, who may or may not actually exist, he's never mentioned in these books, but you can't roundhouse kick a woman. Because I think it was in Scott Bakula's contract that he had to punch or kick someone once per episode. And any accomplishments Janine or Claudia had later in life, Sam would then take credit for, giving them the idea with his rousing bullshit speech. And while this hasn't improved the books, a white man taking credit for the accomplishments of people of color is more believable than this book, where this is the first time Claudia in super white Stony Brook, Connecticut, has ever experienced any kind of microaggression by age of 13. Well... <laughs> Listen, I came up with this at like 2 a.m. and I was just like, I'm not telling Kate what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just gonna do it. Doing it live. Well, as much as I appreciate the lack of Wolverine, because at one time I was the assistant editor on like seven books with Wolverine in it, uh, in them, and I would rather not revisit that. Uh, I am going to have to go with The Rock because he will make things better for these oh, children yeah. uh, in a way that it doesn't sound like the guy from Quantum Leap would. <laughs> he doesn't actually ever fix anything. That's how that show works. <laughs> that or he starts the civil rights movement, him himself. Oh, boy. <laughs> I feel like, I felt like really apt given these books. And I was just like, yeah. <laughs> this, this this is on the same level. <laughs> Quantum Leap is something that is very, very important to me, yet also I want to write books about because what was going on? <laughs> like, I was literally watching this as a five-year-old being like, this is the best book on television, and then I revisited it when I was in my 20s, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> all, right. all right. Excellent game. <laughs> I think we all had a lot of fun. And it's time now to move on to the moral of the story.
Uh, well, my original moral of the story was friendship is magic, uh, since that seems to be the theme of all the BSC books, and that theme song that Kate said she's not going to sing. I was going to af- make it also, that was also going to be my moral, <laughs> was just going to be like, say hello to your friends, baby dinner's club, say hello to people who care. <laughs> but you know what, after uh, that very interesting explanation of Quantum Leap, I think I'm changing my moral to the 90s were weird. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> My moral is uh, 13-year-olds can handle anything, which when I was an 8-year-old reading these books was super great, but now I'm 32 and I just disagree wholeheartedly. But I think that's how middle grade novels are supposed to go and that's why I don't read them. (laughs) (laughs) And my moral of the story is referring to all of this franchise as a whole. If you've got a cash cow, milk it for all it's worth. It's pretty solid. Pretty solid. Solid. Mm. All right. Uh, as Duarte is also on vacation with Renata in a sadness cave, instead of Duarte's corner, he has ceded it to our pet slash son, <laughs> Shark Klopperhosh, for Klopperhosh's corner. So, take it away, Klopperhosh. You know, you make some good points. Uh, I don't know if there were sharks around the island. Uh, that really was never referred to in the book. Definitely would have improved the situation. All three of these books, really, if yeah. there were sharks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me especially. It's a little harsh to say that the uh, the babysitters should be eaten by the sharks, but I do understand you are a shark. You have strong opinions on these things. What if their solution, you're right, and this is their solution to Mrs. Lowell was just to feed her to sharks. I think that would have at least been a, a resolution. Yeah, yeah. You're, you were right about that. You know, that did sort of peter out at the end there. Not sure how being chased and eaten by sharks would help Ducky at all, but, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. Yeah, right? Your own fan fiction. It's fine, bro. We still love you. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Clapper Hodge. We look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts on uh, the rest of books this summer. And uh, now, before we close, uh, let's just check in with Renata in the Sadness Cave. Renata, how's it going out there? Hi, guys. It's hard out here in my Sadness Cave. Um, as I so often do when I was planning for this trip, I asked myself, what would Claudia Kishi do? And so I've hidden snacks in Nancy Drew novels all over the cave, but bears keep eating them, both the snacks and the books, which is probably not good for them. And I just, I packed way too many scrunchies and not enough jackets and things like that. So uh, not great. Next time I go out, I'll probably ask myself, like, what would Christy do? She's really probably the better cave dwelling role model. (sighs) Hope you guys are doing well. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. Okay. Well, uh, we'll be sure to check in with you again in two weeks. Yeah, I can't wait to hear how things will have changed for you in the Sadness Cave. Yep. All right. Uh, does anyone have any closing thoughts? I really hadn't read these any of these books in 22 years, and it was so strange rereading them. The thing, like, it's interesting to me, too, because even now, like, the reason I keep calling them the most capable 13-year-old girls is when I was reading them at 8... I was like, oh my god, like, they're so adult. 13 is so adult. Then, like, when I was rereading them occasionally for fun, when I was, like, in my late teens and early 20s, I was like, oh my god, these girls are so capable. They're 13. I was 13 once. (laughs) I still 
could not do half these things. <laughs> and even now, reading them as a woman in my 30s, like, I'm like, no, they still, I would not have, I could not have done half the things that they do. Like, I, I don't know. They're but I would know to hold my meetings at 7 p.m. Christy. <laughs> to get dinner on the table for their <laughs> myriad kids. Everyone's got a thousand kids in this town. I would like to read the book written by like the one single adult who has no children in this town. <laughs> who's just like, the fuck? These kids are so loud and they're everywhere. <laughs> they host the key parties. <laughs> I, uh, I will just say that I, I think it's interesting how much these books feel both dated and not dated. Because unlike a lot of books from that era, they're not full of uh, contemporary pop culture references. So these kids all sound like they're, you know, 50 years old and love The Wizard of Oz and other such things. But you don't have to, like, I don't know, get rid of their obsession with Debbie Gibson or something. But at the same time, in the era of the internet and cell phones, there's yeah, no the way. the whole time they were on the island, I was like, <laughs> um, just pull out your goddamn cell phone. I'm sure that there is still reception on this island in Connecticut and be like, Dad, come pick me up in your other boat. <laughs> <laughs> club meeting itself you don't need to sit in a room like you could have an email <laughs> like, right it'd be so much better they were lying obsolete. on claudia's phone line and then like even when the the boat's crashed, she doesn't even have her own answering machine which i thought was kind of funny they borrowed the kishi's answering machine so they wouldn't really miss a meeting they'd just be like we're the babysitter's club and we're busy right now mm -hmm. but just leave a message <laughs> it's like oh my god your friends might be dying <laughs> take a day off christy <laughs> All right, as always, you can find us on WorstBestSellers.com for some more information about this episode, our past episode, and uh, the Reader's Advisory. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash WorstBestSellers. You can join our Goodreads group. You can follow us on Twitter at WorstBestSeller with no S. You can follow me personally on Twitter at 14across. You can follow me personally on Twitter at, I guess I never say this, but I'll say at Enthusiastic, like the beverage and you're enthusiastic about it. I'm locked though, so like, I'll see if you're following Kate first, probably before <laughs> I let you add me. <laughs> I'm secret. And all I talk about is critical role these days, so you don't want to follow me anyway. And you can uh, follow me on Twitter at at uh, Jen Margaret Smith. That's Margaret M A R G R E T, no extra A, uh, and Jen with only one N. And I'm going to take the opportunity to self promote a little bit. You should all be reading Monstrous uh, from Image Comics by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. It's the uh, comic book I currently edit, and it's great uh, and not child appropriate, but tons of fun all the same. All right. Uh, you can subscribe to us on Stitcher and iTunes, and now Google Play as well. And if you do, please be sure to rate and review us. Uh, it pops us up a little bit in the charts so that more people can discover us and, you know, revisit their childhood and say hello to their friends, the Babysitter's Club. All right, next time we will be back in our summer of nostalgia with some Goosebumps and Fear Street books by R.L. Stein. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you then. Or I guess you look forward to hearing from us then. <laughs> That's presumptuous. Yeah, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> and if you hate me, Renata will be back for Sadness Cave. <laughs> Eventually. Maybe. Not for Goosebumps, though. No. We wouldn't make her do that. No, she'd be too scared. We know how she She's feels scared of cameras. Skeleton barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Everyone, goodbye. Bye. Bye.
Your podcast mom is here staring you down. You thought it'd be a good idea for us to sit across each other. <laughs>